Let's pray one more time together. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would be our vision. That in our mind, you would be our uppermost value, the preeminent treasure of our lives. And I pray that we would see today how to transmit that treasuring of you to our children. And we parents gathered here pray for our children right now. Some are with us in this convention. Some are grown and married. Some are at home. And our hearts ache for some of them. We tremble for some of them. We're delighted in many of them. And I pray that you would work mightily right now in their lives and open them to make you their vision. Into your hands we commit our children and this time in which we long to become better parents. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me try to recap yesterday for you and then move into the application of that towards our parenting today. Yesterday, I gave you this sentence, which I said would be the most important, and I I think it will be the most important today as well, namely, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. And I said that our quest to be satisfied in God is rooted in God's satisfaction in God, in God's infinite exuberance over being God. And I gave you a whole string of texts from creation to consummation, which show that God does everything he does in order to magnify God. And then I asked, is that a loving thing of God to do, to be so self-exalting in the world, to do everything he does to magnify his glory? And I answered, yes, it is loving by pointing to a quote from C.S. Lewis, who said that, Our enjoyment of a value comes to consummation when we give expression to that enjoyment in praise. Therefore, if God loves us fully and has given us what is best for us himself for our enjoyment, he must push that enjoyment to its consummation by beckoning our praise, which is very self-centered of him. You see, God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue. You may not copy him in this, I said. You must copy him in the sense that you join him in exalting himself, not yourself. If you join others, like the devil... In exalting yourself, you strive against the Lord. And therefore, it is loving of God to seek our praise for himself. We must not begrudge him that God-centeredness. The world is in rebellion against God-centeredness. The world wants man to be at the center and to be the measure of all things, And God, in a tremendous self-exalting orientation in the scriptures, will not have it so. And so my conclusion was that, yes, he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and his quest to be the center and my quest to be happy are not at odds but come to united consummation in worship. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Therefore, my quest to be satisfied and God's quest to be glorified are one, which is the gospel. And it was performed in the cross, which vindicated both the glory of God and his righteousness and by canceling all my sins and bringing me into the palace, as one of those quotes said. When he died, he did not just open the doors of the prison, he opened the doors of the palace, and he vindicated the righteousness of God. I concluded 
by saying, and this is where I pick it up this morning, therefore, parents should make it their lifelong passion and vocation to be as happy in God as you can be on this earth. Now, I want to, this morning, give four reasons why I think that is the number one strategy of parenting. And if you leave with anything that's a tip on how to be good parents, it is to be a good parent, I must devote my energies to being satisfied with God. I must devote my energy to being happy in God, or I will not be a successful parent. Reason number one. I'm going to give you four reasons for that, and then I'm going to turn to how can you become that kind of person. That is, how do you sustain that kind of satisfaction and happiness in God? Reason number one. That you should make being happy in God your primary parental strategy. It is the only way to keep God and worship central in your home. It's the only way to keep God and worship central in your home. Now let me work with that for a minute. I find that in speaking on this issue of what I have in this book called Christian Hedonism, Hedonism, a little girl heard me say that one time and she thought I was saying heathenism. And a lot of people equate hedonism with heathenism. And I've written this book to prove that there is a Christian hedonism that is a living for pleasure. And if you balk at the word pleasure, I send you back to Psalm 1611. Thou dost show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy, at thy right hand are what forevermore? Pleasures forevermore. The Bible is unabashed in its hedonistic uses of words like pleasure and delight and joy and happiness. Because I find that in preaching to Christian groups, they say, well, yes, we should have joy in God, but pleasure and happiness, those are not good words to pursue. That's not right. If you pursue them in God, and he is that pleasure. Immanuel Kant, philosopher from the 18th century, said that you should only do right, including worship, because it's right. And for no benefit that comes to you whatsoever, and to the degree that you pursue your pleasure and your benefit in any act, you defile the act. And I'm striving against that philosophy with all my might, even though you'll hear it in thousands of pulpits, and it lingers in the evangelical air like fog. That if you pursue your joy in whatever act you're pursuing it, you bring the moral value of that act down, not up. The thesis of this book and my life is exactly the opposite, because I believe the thesis of the Bible is exactly the opposite. Namely, to the degree that you resist your God-given passionate quest for satisfaction and happiness in God, to the degree that you resist that because it seems to be morally deficient, you will not be able to love people or honor God. Or let me put it positively. A passionate quest for happiness in God is an essential component for all worship and all virtue. Now, if that sounds foreign to you and strange, I wish I had ten lectures. But I'll just send you to this book. And I want you... If that sounds odd and strange and foreign and unbiblical to you, that you should devote as parents your life to being as happy as you possibly can be, then I send you to the book. 
and ask that you would consider. I'm going to do the best I can this morning with defending it, but there's lots more to be said than I can say this morning. It is a deadly thing. It is a deadly thing on Sunday morning. And it's a deadly thing in your home as you train your children to believe that you must constantly resist your desire to be happy instead of channeling your desire to be happy into God. He is most centered on in your family and most glorified for your children when they see you questing after happiness in him and finding it in him. He is mightily, mightily honored. A fountain. How do you honor a fountain? Picture God as a fountain like Jeremiah 2.13 does. Picture God as a fountain, a spring high in the mountains. How do you honor and glorify a fountain? By lugging buckets of water up from the valley of human effort in duty and vain worship and saying, fountain, for your sake, and dump it in. He says, no, thank you. The way you glorify a fountain is feeling the desperate thirst that everybody in this room has for God. You may not know it's for God, but it is. The desperate thirst for happiness and fulfillment and falling flat on your face by that fountain and putting your face in that water and drinking and drinking and drinking and then looking up and saying, that's really good. And that sentence is worship. That's what worship is. That's really good. And if you try to pour your buckets of effort into his all sufficiency, you defile him. That's the way a lot of people try to worship. Duty, work hard, contribute to God. He needs me. Instead of letting him be the all sufficient overflowing fountain, which we need moment by moment. So my first point is, my first defense of saying that the primary parental strategy is for you parents to pursue your joy with all your might in God is that you'll keep him at the center of your family if you do that. He will be exalted in your family if you do that. He will be seen as gloriously all-sufficient and satisfying to your children if you do that. Reason number two. Reason to pursue your satisfaction in God as your primary parental strategy is this. It agrees with principle number one. I'll review. Remember, if you weren't here yesterday, I'll tell you what principle number was, what number one was of parental strategy. The primacy of unconscious influence. I argued that 99% of the actions you perform that influence your children, you do not premeditate. Scary, scary thought. You premeditate whether to go to church on Sunday morning. You premeditate whether to have devotions in the evening. You premeditate sometimes whether to spank them probably. Well, that's about 0.001% of your life. Morning till night, your face has a facial expression. Your hands are moving a certain way. Your voice is rising and falling. You're responding to the television, to the weather, to the food, to everything. And they are watching and you're not planning any of it. It is coming out of the fullness of your heart, whether white, black or gray. And they are learning. Your values. My point here, the second argument is that if you don't pursue your own heartfelt satisfaction in God and find it there so that out of the abundance of joy in God, the mouth speaks, the hands move, the face expresses and you respond, then you're a goner as far as 90 percent of your life influence on your children. If it's coming from something else, if it's coming from a craving for significance in the world or a craving to be liked more by your spouse or a craving for more money or a craving for alcohol or a craving for something and not God, they're going to see that. They won't articulate it. They can't. But later on, 
they'll start to put the pieces together that the reason mom and dad acted that way is because they really did not find their treasure in God. And they'll see that. And you can't plan against that. You can read five parenting books a year by Dobson and all the others, which I think are valuable to read. But you can read all those, and if your heart isn't full of God, it won't work. It's vain. It's hopeless. Number three, third reason for why your primary parental strategy should be pursuing your own joy in God. It agrees with principle two. (laughs) Principle two was... The contagious power of a happy example. My point was, when your children watch what you do, what you say, they don't gravitate towards the imitation of the things that make you miserable. Even if you say they don't make you miserable, they can tell if going to church makes dad miserable. If they sit there and mom, the believer, or the more spiritual one, perhaps, seems to be enjoying the service. They see that. And they watch Dad. He doesn't open his mouth. He seems real bored. They don't tend to imitate what makes people unhappy. So why would this boy, little boy, want to go to church? Dad doesn't like going to church. Dad likes to hunt. I like to be with Dad when he's hunting. I don't like to be with Dad when he's in church. He's bored. And Well, they just learn what's in here. So the point is, how are you going to get them to love God? How are you going to get them to enjoy God more than hunting? And the answer is, you got to enjoy God. you got to enjoy God. So your primary parental strategy on this principle is seek God. Seek happiness in God. It won't work any other Way. Reality begets reality. Authenticity begets authenticity. We go insane trying to guard our children from our spontaneity. We need to be able to relax and be who we are around our children. And the only way then to be good influences upon them for God is for him to be filling us and satisfying us. Here's reason number four for why your parental strategy should be pursuit of your own pleasure in God. This breaks the power of parental sins, especially sins against spouse and against children. And every sin against a spouse is a sin against your children. How do you break, as Charles Wesley said, how do you break the power of canceled sin? My answer is, by the power of a new expulsive affection. I get that phrase from Thomas Chalmers, old Scottish pastor from a couple centuries ago. The expulsive power of a new affection. You see, I've been a Christian a long time, 42 years of my life, and... I have discovered in battling against things like lust and greed and the love of the praise of men that you got to fight fire with fire. What I mean by that is I have never sinned out of duty. I wonder if any of you have ever sinned out of duty. I, I make this statement absolutely. We never sin out of duty. We never get up in the morning and say, I really don't want to sin today, but I should. And so I will. (laughs) Nobody ever sins out of duty. What do you sin out of? You sin out of desire. You sin because the option of sin looks real attractive. That's the only reason I've ever sinned. It looks attractive. Feels attractive. That's fire. That's fire in my bones. Lust is the most obvious example of fire. Money's got fire in it. In my life, you're liking what I'm saying now is a great temptation to me to alter what I say, to advance that approval. That's fire in my bones. So how do you fight fire? 
You fight fire with fire. That is pleasure with pleasure. Desire with desire. It's the only way I've ever found that works in fighting lust. Or fighting anger. Or any other sin. I must counter the desire that is drawing me to this expression of lust or this expression of anger or this greed or this desire for the approval of men. I must counter that desire with a, an expulsive new affection. A desire that is stronger. It won't work as I stand up and preach to my people. It won't work to say, don't lust. Well, that's a BB against the box, a Sherman tank. Don't lust. What, what is that? You know, just don't do it. I'm, I must present to these people a, a vision of God and of purity and of holiness and of liberty. This is what, this is what really works for a lot of our guys and younger guys when Paul said, uh, I am free, but I will not be enslaved by anything. You give me 30 minutes to unpack with a group of guys the joy, the power, the zeal, the wonder of being free men over our lusts. Who will not be enslaved by anything so that when I walk through airports, which are the most dangerous places for traveling parsons, because you think nobody's around, and you go into these stores... And they got these magazines. You know what works? The desire of knowing that I'm free. And I can walk right by it. Yeah, so there, Satan. You think you can control me by my lust? I'm a free man. And there's a desire I have to want to be a free man. I want to say with the Apostle Paul, I will not be enslaved by anything. And so I hold out to our people alternative pleasures. The pleasures of being free people. The pleasures of purity. The pleasures of a good conscience. The pleasures of looking into your son's eyes and saying, don't do it, son. Don't do it. I don't do it. You don't have to do it. Instead of lying to them. Oh, there are pleasures. The pleasures of knowing God, being satisfied by God, are the only way I know how to break the power of canceled sin against our children and against our spouses. Let me talk a little, a minute about, about this, um, with spouses. The worst thing you can do for your kids is hate your spouse and be mean to your spouse and abuse your spouse and not love your spouse and not enjoy your spouse and be alienated from your spouse. And I've known this. My wife and I were in uh, 33 months of marital counseling four years ago, was it? We've known not having sex for a long, long time, eight weeks. We've known not being able to talk for three days. We've known the multiple burdens of church and family and marriage and money and everything collapsing all at once and nothing seeming to work. And every sentence that comes out of your mouth is misinterpreted. Pastors do. Pastors have to reckon with that. Where do you get? I ask you, where do you get the resources to survive, recover and thrive in that? Where do you get that? Not from books on parenting and the children are at stake here the children are at stake so if you love them and you want to hand God on to him you got to work on that marriage with all your might suppose you say you feel some of you do right now feel I just must have a spouse who touches me more just hugs me not not for sex just hugs me I must have a spouse who spends more time with me. I just must. He's got to spend more time with me. I must have a spouse who will be a spiritual partner. Pray with me. Oh, the women that cry in my office over husbands who won't, who don't have any spiritual inclinations. I must have a spouse who loses weight. I can't, I can't be happy if she doesn't lose weight. 
I must have a spouse who stops wearing those kinds of clothes. I must have a spouse who fixes different food. I must have a spouse who uh, gets places on time. I can't stand it that we're always late. I must have a spouse who doesn't talk so much in public and put their foot in their mouth. I must have a spouse who stops spending that way. Why? Now, as long as you are saying that, must, I must, I must. And I felt those musts during those months of counseling. It must be different. Satan gets a real upper hand of blindness in your life here. And marriages break over that must. And children suffer and don't see God. They see a parent who couldn't find satisfaction in God. They know. They know. Later on, they'll learn. Dad had to have this. Mom said she had to have this from Dad. And he didn't give it. And so they quit. Which means God wasn't enough to keep them satisfied. My my point, this is I'm still on the fourth point, that pursuing your pleasure in God is the only hope of breaking the power of canceled sin against spouse, against children. You know, when we quit going to counseling, we didn't know quite why we quit. I just we weren't done, I'll tell you. It was not a happy finishing. We just quit. I got so mad. I said, I'm not going back. We're going to work this another way. And in the four years since then, um, God just did something. I couldn't even tell you now. And I, I heard Noelle. She's not here now. She's at the other meeting. But we had lunch with a couple last night. And they were asking us how things were going. And, and we, we talked about marriage issues a little bit. And she said, you know, It's really hard to put our finger on what God did. That's often the way grace works. And and you know that's real hope giving to people? Because if you sit there right now thinking that you have to be able to imagine how it's going to get fixed, then you get discouraged because you can't imagine how it could get fixed. It's like standing before the Red Sea. Or having God say to Abraham, your wife is going to have a baby when she's barren and you're too old. God has ways of splitting seas, stopping suns in the skies, making virgins get pregnant. And he has a way of fixing marriages that you wake up one morning. And for some reason, the craving for that thing that she wasn't isn't as strong anymore. And the diminution of my craving for that thing starts to free her to be. A little more of that thing, though probably it will never be there the way I wanted it there. We were talking with a couple last night about why there's so many midlife crises. It was about the years 42 to 46 where we went through that. There are books about it, you know, men in midlife crisis and all that stuff. Why? Why is that? And there, we came up with several reasons. One reason was... Um, Right about that time, after you've been married 20, 20, 25 years, the dreams are over of changing each other. You think for the first 10, 15 years, she's going to be different. She's going to be different. He's going to be different. He's going to be different. And along about 15 or 20, I'm going to, she's going to always be this way. And around about that time, your body is changing a little bit. And there are tremendous pressures at work. You become the buck stopper when you're in your early to mid. Your pressures are heavy. Third component, teenagers are suddenly there. And you put those three together with maybe some health issues and wider family issues. And you got the makings of breakings. So I just want to urge you, get through that season. I'm 48 now. I feel like a world is open to me and Noel. Feel good about the future, about my life, about the church, and about my boys. I've shed more tears over my sons. You ever had a kid run away on Friday when you're a pastor and not show up for five days? And you got to preach. 
God is good. He's back. and I think they're all in the family of faith. Pursue your pleasure in God, folks. Don't make it complicated. It isn't complicated. Simple. Hard, but simple. Go after God. Now, let me see. Where am I here? I'm sort of getting carried away and losing my place in my notes. Um, that was point four. You break the power of canceled sin by um, going hard after God and getting your heart so satisfied in God so that you say, if she never changes, if he never changes, God's enough to keep me coming back and saying, I love you. We're in this. And we're going to make it. And when we're old, we'll look back on this chapter and it'll give us pleasure that we were free to be married in pain. And the children will love you for it. They'll love you for it. They'll love you for it. My kids know what we were going through. And they're glad today. They're glad that we're married and that we're happy. Now, here's the last half of what I want to say. It's not half, but. I want to ask you the question, how are you going to do this? Just just get a little more practical here. And uh, we've heard some good things from the bells yesterday, for example. And I want to talk a little more about the practical, how do you pursue your own joy for the sake of the kids and for the glory of God? The first thing, and it's going to be very basic and very simple, I want you to pray. And here's here's the reason I put prayer first. Being happy in God is counter-cultural and against your nature. You saw that in one of those slides. I forget which one it was. But it is against your nature to be happy in God. It is according to your fallen nature to be happy in self-exaltation, yourself being exalted, the applause of people, or getting rich. So that you can multiply earthly comforts or satisfying all of your bodily appetites and overeating and oversexing. You know, we've got those TVs in our rooms. Click, click. Oh, previews for adult movies. Hmm. What are you going to do with that in the hotel? It's natural to give in to that. It is unnatural to look at that and say... You know, if I turn those on, my fellowship with Jesus would be damaged tremendously. And my main joys come from fellowship with Jesus, and therefore I will not turn those on. That would be unnatural, very unnatural. That's why you must pray. You must pray. Prayers like this, Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. That's a prayer to God that he would satisfy you. Next verse, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. So there are two prayers. Satisfy us in the morning. Make us glad. Now, why do you pray that? Can't you just do it? No, you can't. God has to do it. It is unnatural for you to be satisfied in God. It is unnatural for you to be glad in God. Some of you are sitting there right now still back on the hunting illustration. I do enjoy hunting more than church. You're saying to yourself... Honestly. And I'm saying, okay, recognize that. Tell God that. It might possibly be some things at your church that have something to do with that and not God. But tell God that and then pray like this. Lord, satisfy me in the morning. Now, I've got guys in my church who when I started preaching on this 15 years ago, one of them came up to me and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any of those You sound like you live in another realm of emotion. I don't have emotions like you're talking about even. 
And I said to him, Mike, I don't believe you. And I don't believe anybody who says that. They don't think they know themselves. I said, now tell me. I can remember this. We were right by the doors on the 13th Avenue side. This is 14 years ago. I said, tell me. Don't anywhere in your life you have experiences that are high and satisfying and, 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 and ennobling and feel really big and expansive and good. And he thought, he said, well, in the boundary waters, on the canoe trip, I think I've, I know what you're talking about. I said, okay, you got it. You got it. I know you're capable of it now. All you need to do is the way a musician takes a line of music and transposes it up a key. C.S. Lewis has a sermon called Transposition. It's powerful, deep, insightful. Take that music of your life in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota where there's not a sound around but trickling water and a sky so full of stars they look like one sheet of light. And when that rises up, do this. Write the transposition up a key in God and say, God made it. God made me. God said the heavens are declaring not just stars. They are declaring the glory of God. The firmament declares his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech. And night unto night is about God. Mike, transpose those feelings up one notch and you've got it. And I thought lights went on. Lights went on. And I invite you to do that, guys or gals who... who who think, I don't have those emotions you're talking about. You do. You do. They're just kind of tucked away. They come here and there. And all you need to do is learn how to cultivate them and transpose them and realize the maker of whatever it is that gives you pleasure wants that pleasure up a notch into him. Pray that he would satisfy your heart. We have not because we ask not. It may be that simple for you today. You may be sitting there saying, I don't feel satisfaction in God and my marriage is the pits. And I don't think that I can get enough happiness from God in order to survive here. Have you asked him? Have you just asked him? Do it. Satisfy me. Satisfy me with your self. Prayer, according to Jesus, does two things. That make it priority number one when it comes to being satisfied in God so he gets glory. Here's what Jesus said. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete. That amazing? Aren't you glad Jesus talks like that? And doesn't say, when you pray, you better get your own joy out of your head. Or you will contaminate your prayers with your own pursuit of your own joy. That's the way a philosopher like Immanuel Kant would talk. But Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And then he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father. And there you have it. Ask that you may be satisfied and he may be glorified. Get it? It's biblical. I'll give you those verses in case you wonder where that's coming from. John 16, 24 and John 14, 13. Ask that your joy may be full and ask that the Father may be glorified. They are not at odds. They're one. They come to one in prayer. Prayer has this tremendous advantage. In prayer, you're weak and he's strong. You're hungry, and he's full. You're ignorant, he's infinitely intelligent. You're dumb, and he's wise. In other words, you are the beneficiary, and he is the benefactor. You get the joy, he gets the glory. And that's what life is all about. Oh, I love prayer. I love God being a prayer-hearing, prayer-teaching God. Somebody said somewhere in this conference, and I've lost track of everything, talking about God's hunger. I thought, mm, mm. theologically, that jars me. God hungry, needy, hunger pangs. Ooh, I think, no, 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 no. And then I thought, I, yes, okay. If I interpret it theologically, 
my way, I can talk about God's hunger. Two ways. In Revelation, it talks about the the prayers of the saints being a sweet aroma to God. So I picture God in the kitchen. And he is about to make a banquet for the saints. And the aroma that God enjoys is us ringing the bell. It's lunchtime. That's our prayers. We're hungry for your banquet. And we ring the bell. I'm switching the metaphors around here. Bell and smell. <laughs> bell and smell. And, and, uh, and he hears it or he smells it. He says, mm, I love that smell of prayer. Woo, that smells, or just switch it to taste now, that tastes so good. In other words, the one thing that God loves to feed on is our need for him. Which switches it right around to draw attention to his fullness. God feeds on your need of him. He tastes, he eats your need. When Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I will come in and do what with him? Sup, eat, eat supper, eat supper. And I wrote a little news article for our magazine the other day. What does he eat? When he comes into your heart, what does he eat? He eats need. He eats need, which means he loves the smell of prayer coming out of the kitchen of your life. He eats and feeds upon the need. So he sits down at your table. In the heart, picture your heart, you open your heart, come in. This is not just Christians. That text was given to believers. You know that, don't you? Revelation 3.20 is not for unbelievers, it's for believers. It has an application to unbelievers. You come in, he sits down with you in the evening, in your heart, and he says, Okay, I'm hungry. Feed me. What are you going to feed him? You have nothing. He says, That's it. (laughs) That's it. Give me. Give me what you've got. You're nothing, and I will now turn your nothing into a banquet table of meditation and enjoyment for you. My first practical how-to is pray. Ask him for joy. Call out to him for help. Here's number two, and this is the last one. Meditate on the word of God. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Beholding him as in a mirror, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. Beholding is becoming, according to that text. Beholding is becoming. Where do you behold Jesus? I behold Jesus in the Bible. That's the main function of the Bible for me, is to see God, to see Jesus. So I commend to you meditation. When prayer intersects with the word, you have the most powerful event possible in coming to satisfaction in God. Because the prayer that you pray when you open your Bible is, open your Bible, And you say, Psalm 19, or 119, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your word. You know why you have to pray that? Because by nature, these are black marks on a page and there is no resonance here at all. You've all had the experience. You do your devotion thing, you read it, you close your Bible, nothing, nothing. Can't remember what you read. Your mind's all taken up with pressures at work, the family, the dust you just noticed on the floor. It's, and nothing happened. That's, that's common. For everybody, that's common. Believe me, it's common for everybody. And we must fight it with prayer in the Word. So that you pray Psalm 119.18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things, that these look wonderful when I read them. Or Psalm 119.12. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Now, when that happens, when you pray that God would open his word to you, 
then things go on. Yesterday morning, what I try to do, this is a little pr- practical tip, what I try to do in my devotions, I've been reading through the Bible, and I'm almost, I'm going to make it through, I think, by the end of the year. i got, what, three days to finish the Bible? Now, I'm, I finished Zechariah this morning at 6 o'clock. I was barely keeping my eyes open, and when not much was happening spiritually, I'll tell you, because I was up so late last night. But I was going to finish, and so I, I mingle spontaneity with discipline, and I read my Bible, and I pray, Lord, open my eyes. Yesterday I was reading in the ninth chapter of Zechariah, and I and God just kind of opened my eyes to chapter 9, verse 11, where it says, Because of the blood of the covenant I made with you, I will... Rescue your captives. Return to your strongholds, O prisoners of hope. Now, at that moment, I just stayed there. I didn't go very far. This is what I try to do in my devotions. I'm looking for God. I'm on the lookout for something about God and his relationship to me that I can memorize, store up, and use all day long. And I'm using it right now. This one, it's not written down here. This is just yesterday. And again, this morning, I looked on that verse. And I asked, what is this? Return to your strongholds, O prisoners of hope. And I just dwelt on that. What is a prisoner of hope? And I think in the context, it is these people were in exile and therefore prisoners. They have been taken away from their strongholds in Jerusalem because they had been obliterated. And now he's in Hope telling them, go back to, to your strongholds in Jerusalem, O prisoners of hope. God sent his people into exile in hope. It wasn't the final word. And I thought about all the exiles of my life and all the, the frustrations with kids and frustrations with marriage and frustrations with church and frustrations with friends that are like exile experiences away from where you want to be in Jerusalem. And I heard God saying, yes, 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 that's right. They're not perfect. They're not the way you'd like them to be. But there's hope. It's an exile of hope. So I commend to you as you read the Bible, look and listen and pray. And when that happens, it says... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. More precious are they than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Talk about the pursuit of pleasure. Isn't the point of that text to say that the Bible is better than gold, yea, much fine gold, and it's sweeter than honey, yea, drippings from the honeycomb? What's the point of talking like that? It's to tell you, come on, come on, turn away from the dead-end streets and the brackish water of the world and put your mouth to the honey of the word. If you want to be happy in God, lick the honeycomb. If you want to be happy in God, take the gold from the Bible. How many people come into my office with problems of all kinds, and if I ask them, tell me about your life in the Word, and they say, well, it just doesn't exist right now. If you don't lick the honey, you won't taste the sweetness. If you don't take the gold, you won't feel the riches. Oh, my dad, Bill Piper, he lived in the word and he lived in joy in God. And as a little child growing up in Bill and Ruth Piper's home, I will never stop thanking God that what I saw was joy. They sang in the car coming home on vacation. We'd be coming home and I was thinking I'd rather be in Florida still and They'd be singing Heavenly Sunshine. And I watched my dad go through financial crises. He's an evangelist, an independent evangelist, totally dependent for his finances on love offerings that churches would give him. And he'd go and come back and, and he'd say, well, it wasn't quite enough, but God will supply. And he never, ever seemed to go into a funk in which I became the butt of his frustration and anger. And what I heard was the solution. I heard it in a hundred ways. 
is all things work together for good, Johnny. God take care of us. And we can rejoice. We can rest. And I just absorbed that from my dad. No matter what, we can rest. We can trust. He'll take care of us. And my dad's the happiest man I've ever known. I dedicated this book to my dad. In whom I first saw the happiness and the holiness of God. Well, let me close with one illustration from uh, the life of George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller, you, you remember, was the British orphanage builder, pastor, man of prayer who would bow in the morning when he had no milk for the kids and he'd look up and there's a milk truck, you know. <laughs> what was the key to his life of serenity for his children? Here's what he wrote. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I read that too fast. Can you believe this man said this? The first great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul happy in the Lord and how my inner man might be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, that thus whilst meditating, my heart might be brought into an experimental communion with the Lord. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning early in the morning. Amen. So let me summarize where we've been and close in prayer and then we'll see. There is a grand and glorious God over your life and over this universe. His purpose and aim is to be glorified and honored in this world. The means, the essential core means by which God is glorified in us is by our being satisfied in him. Children mainly imitate what makes their parents satisfied, not makes their parents miserable. Therefore, for God's sake, for your children's sake, and for your sake, make your primary parental strategy the pursuit of pleasure in God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray now the way the psalmist prayed that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, that you would release us as we close in song, that you would release us to worship you and to enjoy you, to behold you. I pray that marriages would be knit together here. I pray that children would become the beneficiaries of new pleasures coming into parents, families here. And I pray that you would get great glory from our being satisfied in you. Through Christ I pray. Amen.